The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon and welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and this is the place if you are looking for advice and news and strategies and techniques to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. And today we are going to educate you a bit on the use of contracts, ladies and gentlemen, something that as real estate investors we all use every day, and yet few real estate investors seem to understand the uh, import of using them right. Uh, before we do that, a couple of quick announcements. The Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati's uh, monthly wholesaling subgroup meeting is tonight at Foley's Grill in Reading. Um, that is a meeting that is open to all members of the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati. And uh, starts at 6.30. It's a way to learn more about wholesaling if that is the thing that you are doing or would like to do. Uh, tomorrow night at the main meeting of the Real Estate Investor Association of Cincinnati, uh, we will be talking at the early meeting about the basics of wholesaling and then at the main meeting about how to get a free house. How to get how to get free houses, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say any more about that meeting because if you're in the greater Cincinnati area and you decide not to come to a meeting about how to get free houses, I I'm just not sure what to do for you. You can get more information about those meetings at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's Cincinnati R E I A dot com, and uh, again the meeting is tomorrow night at the usual location. The CAA building at Reading Road and Seymour in Jordan Crossing. My guest this evening is attorney James Flax, who pretty well limits his practice to working with real estate investors on contract issues, entity issues, and so on. Uh, James is a graduate of the University of Cincinnati Law School and has been working full-time now with real estate investors for over half a decade. Uh, James, you pretty much constantly are dealing with the fallout of real estate investors not understanding fully how various types of contracts are used, drafted, amended, etc. And you've sort of put together a a like top five list of mistakes that you see 
real estate investors making. And so without without beating up our listeners too horribly badly, what what is what is one of the biggest mistakes that you see real estate investors making? Well, one of the biggest mistakes that I see investors making, and uh, frankly, it's the biggest, is um, calling me or another attorney too late in the process. Um, once you've bought the house and have discovered that things are not as you thought they were in your deal, it's a little late. There's a limited amount that any of us can do to fix it, because at that point, you know, the other party has your money, they've got your signature on whatever agreements you've entered into with them, and the fact that those agreements don't say what you thought they said, well, I guess at that point, it's really just sort of too bad. Mm-hmm. Well, and you and I both know why that happens. Why, why, why real estate investors don't come to attorneys to draft contact tracks, review contracts, uh, etc. And that is, um, they don't want to spend the money. Oh, absolutely. How realistically, how much does a contract review cost typically? Well, if, we're, if you're talking about a, a, a short agreement, like most of the agreements that I, I see in, in single-family house deals, or you know, one to four unit buildings, mm-hmm. yeah, fifty, a hundred dollars. I mean, it's that, that's that's what I would charge. I, I'm sure that you can find a lawyer that will charge you all the way up the scale, but uh, I would be surprised if even you know, the expensive downtown attorney is going to be more than a couple hundred dollars for that. It's it's not that much work. And you know, how much money can one lose by putting $100,000 into a property and then finding out one does not, in fact, own it because one got a quitclaim deed and didn't check and see that there was a $120,000 unreleased mortgage on it? I mean, that's a rhetorical question, obviously. <laughs> but Well, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, if, if, you, if you bought it, carefully in an entity or a trust or something that you can just walk away from and wash your hands, you're limited to the 100000 But if you bought it in your own name, uh, when the city shows up and scrapes the lot and hits you with a $20,000 lien on top of your $100,000 purchase for a house, which is no longer there because it was condemned, I, boy, the, it's the sky's the limit. Yes, the, the point, of course, being, listeners, that... Uh... If, if, if real estate is a major investment, whether you're using your money, other people's money, uh, you're 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 buying cheap, but you're going to put a lot of your own work into it. Compared to the cost of losing the deal, and 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 that's not an exaggeration to say we've seen people lose deals because they took quick claim deeds, not understanding that that meant I'm just getting whatever interest you have, and you're not saying what interest you have. Uh, there's there's no comparison. In, in the cost of uh, making sure that you know what you're agreeing to versus what you could potentially lose either in profits or in actual money by not doing it. So mistake number one is just simply getting, getting an attorney, not getting an attorney involved early enough, I think is what we're saying here. Um, what are, what, what, what's, what's another one? I mean, I know you, you, talk about this all the time. You are seeing these problems all the time. This is not, I mean, you know, certainly can't hold up any one example of any of these mistakes because it's over and over and over again. Uh, what, what's another example that you see commonly? Uh, commonly, I see people 
I usually just put this as people trying to use legalese, but it's it's a little more complicated than that. It, it's people failing to communicate um, effectively, and sometimes that is just the heat of the moment, uh, especially with small real estate transactions. People tend to be writing these contracts up quickly in the field, trying to get their offer in first. Um, sometimes, though, that is a person who is, shall we say, exceeding their understanding of the terms involved, has seen a bunch of contracts, saw a bunch of words that I guess they thought were just decorations, and is now throwing those words in to make the agreement sound more official, and as a result has made the agreement say something totally different from what they thought it said. Mm -hmm. But that that same problem um, can happen even without using legalese. Uh, One of the the worst examples I saw of this, or best if you were on our side, because I was actually working with the tenant on this one. I I do that very rarely, but it was a friend of a friend. Um, The tenant wanted to get out of a land contract, and the landlord didn't want them to and wanted to enforce a bunch of provisions of the contract. And I got a copy of the contract, and they had basically taken their lease, written the word land contract on it, erased a bunch of things from the lease, added a bunch of things to the lease that I'm not sure where they got because they wouldn't have been enforceable in a land contract either, and signed it. They did not record it. They did not even properly identify the property in the in the contract. And yeah, my advice to my client in that situation was just ignore them. If they sue you, we'll file a counterclaim because they have no case. Mm-hmm. And the landlord called me and blustered and screamed a lot. And I just basically said, look, have your attorney call me because once you talk to your attorney, he's going to tell you you don't have a case. And I never heard from him again. So I'm assuming he talked to his attorney and his attorney <laughs> yelled at him a lot for not hiring the attorney to draft the contract. And it all went away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's a minor example because the landlord just lost a tenant. But you know, if you were, say, buying a property and you do something like that, you probably don't own it. <laughs> You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Uh, we're talking today about contracts, contract issues, and contract mistakes that real estate investors make. Uh, you can join in on the conversation locally by calling 513-772-9658, or if you're listening to us online, you can call us at 877-772-9658, or you can send an email by sending it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. My guest today is James Flax. He is an attorney who works every day with landlords and real estate investors and rehabbers and creative buyers who use contracts that um, are are more complex than you might realize they are if you've just done what a lot of people do and I don't know, found one online and said, okay, this looks good and signed it. Uh, Which brings up the question, James, what do you think of the idea of those boilerplate contracts that you can buy from websites that, you know, it's just Ohio lease or, uh, you know, Kentucky land contract? Are those, uh, supposedly they're drafted by attorney, so are those something that we can safely use? Well, if you have a pretty good understanding of what you're doing, like, say, if you're the lawyer who's drafting the thing, 
Uh, sure. You, you get the, the template. I, I, I don't write a new lease for every client that comes to me for a lease. I use you know stuff that I've built on over the years and have in, in my files. Um, and those things can be a good starting point. But I would still suggest at some point, probably before you use it, uh, sitting down with an attorney, uh, having them look it over, make suggestions. You know, it's not necessarily the attorney's job to tell you what to put in the contract, but it's certainly an attorney's job to point out things that they would expect to see that are not there. Um, I, an example of this is in, in lease agreements. Uh, you'll get a nice boilerplate contract. It'll probably match Ohio law. It won't have a lot of unenforceable stuff in it, assuming you buy it from someone who's updated it recently. Uh, but it won't reference all the things that you're going to want to deal with. It's just the basics. And things like uh, whether you're going to allow uh, trampoline in your backyard of the house you're renting to someone. Uh, doesn't seem like something you need to address. I mean, you know, what, what business of yours is it, what toys they have? Well, the business of yours is that the uh, insurance companies occasionally send out inspectors to look at the houses they insure. And the inspector sees a trampoline, the first thing you're going to hear is when you get the cancellation notice, because there is pretty much no liability carrier who will insure a house that's got a trampoline in the backyard. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just a, just one example. It, that's not something I necessarily came out of law school knowing. It's something I sort of discovered working with the. Well, actually, working with Zena, <laughs> we had a tenant who had a tramp mood trampoline in, and we got a call from the the insurance company mm-hmm. and. They wanted the trampoline gone. Fortunately, the tenant was willing to move the trampoline. <laughs> but since then, there have been lines in the lease that reference these things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about this? Um, I get approached by a lot of new, typically newer real estate investors who, instead of under protecting themselves with their contracts are actually sort of going to the other extreme. Uh, I talked to a wholesaler the other day who was trying to sell me a property, but he didn't want to show it to me until he had his purchase contract with a seller notarized. Can you talk about understanding uh, what has to be notarized and witnessed and, and what doesn't? Well, there's, there's really only two two real uses for the notary acknowledgement on a document. One, if the document's going to be recorded, it has to be there. That, that's a provision of the law. Um, two, it, it does make it easier to prove the authenticity of the document in, in court in some situations. And when I say easier, I, I mean that there's a witness then that you could call who actually saw the thing signed if there's potentially going to be any dispute about that. Mm-hmm. People get judgments every day, all day long on contracts that were not notarized. Contracts don't have to be notarized. There's no there's no law that says they have to be. You might want to do it if you've got somebody you think uh, it's going to impress with how efficient official you're being. But the things I'm talking about there would be when you're you're selling to a, a very unsophisticated buyer and you're trying very hard to make them understand the seriousness of the agreement they're entering into. Between investors, there's no no point at all to notarizing the contract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the other uh, interesting thing is uh, uh, people, and this this is sort of a matter of of law, and and will of of often state law, and and will vary from place to place. But people understanding what must be recorded in order to be enforceable versus what we just kind of stick in the file and it's still enforceable. Uh, yes, and. Uh... While there's certainly a lawyer role in helping with that, part of that problem, I think, is you've got a lot of people out there bouncing around the real estate world that are poorly educated in real estate or not educated at all in real estate. And they they will start to do a deal and not understand all the parts of the deal that they're, they're doing. I, I dealt with a person who just absolutely did not understand that they needed a mortgage in addition to the note. And their lender apparently didn't understand this easy either. Fortunately, their lender was uh, loaning through an IRA, so it, the IRA company kind of called a halt to the process until we prepared a mortgage. But uh, this person, I guess, had never really looked over the paperwork, saw that they had a note, thought they were done, and just couldn't understand why the, what the... IRA custodian company was talking about, and the title company sure isn't going to stop you at that point. The title companies, they, there's a, there's money in their account, there's a deed, they're done. It, that's all they really care about. So it is important not just to talk to a lawyer to understand what documents need to come into play for your deal, but to actually understand the concept, really understand what you're doing in your deal. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, you know that's a that's an interesting question because uh, you, you're right. There's a lot of folks who are very educated on the strategies in the sense of how do I renovate a house, but not so much in the legalities of it. How does I mean it's overwhelming. How does one go about learning about those things without going to law school? Well, I, I think you you find yourself a decent real estate mentor. They're going to put the strategies out there, you're going to decide what strategies are interesting to you and fit your needs. And at that point, when you start doing your first deal, talk to a lawyer, Try, preferably talk to someone who's worked with other people who've done the same sort of deal. And, you know, we'll have uh, little pointers on things. I mean, things like a, a subject to deal, which, you know, I'm not a huge fan of. I think people often get seduced into deals that are not as good as they think they are, but it's still a valuable technique to have in your toolbox. Um, But there's going to be some supporting documents you want. You're going to want to have some sort of a power of attorney in your file that allows you to negotiate insurance settlements. Probably doesn't come up but one one time in, you know, a hundred. But the one time it does, you don't want to be going back to your seller who's not thrilled with you because it's five years later and you're still on their loan and they were hoping you'd sell it by now and say, oh, by the way, I need you to endorse over this $60,000 check because the building burned down. You want to have something in your file that lets you actually transact that yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you want to see the, the bank documents, which means not what they hand you, but what you can get directly from the bank. So you're going to need an authorization to, to contact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to James Flax about just sort of general contract stuff. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. 
Well, welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to Attorney James Flax about just some general contract-type issues. Uh, we're not going to get into talking about any specific kind of contract unless you want to, listeners, in which case you need to let us know about that at 877-772-9658 or by sending an email to askvina at gmail.com. Now, if you're going to do the latter, please, please let us know where you are writing from. Because if you say, well, how do I, how do I guarantee that I get my forcible detainer you better say in Georgia, because otherwise we won't know what you're talking about. Um, so we've talked to James about uh, uh, people not coming to you with contracts they are handed <laughs> until it's too late. We have talked about people sort of drafting their own contracts and trying to make it sound like a lot of legalese, which actually messes the contract up because... A lot of these legalese words that you hear, you know, here and after and all those sorts of things actually have meaning. They're not just pretty words that are thrown in at random. Uh, we've talked about uh, understanding what contracts go with what strategies and which ones might need to be recorded in order to be enforceable and which ones don't need to be recorded to be enforceable. Uh, we've talked about, you know, having particularly having uh, great contracts in a case where you're going to be continually involved with the other person in the contract, such as when a, in a subject to uh, land contracts would fall into that category, leases and lease options would fall into that category. They're not just extinguished at, at the point at which the property is purchased. Uh, what else do you see folks doing in our business that you would like to shake your finger at them about? Well, I mean, I, I've been trying to to fight against this for years, but this one uh, I, I have no hope of winning on. Um, especially in a case where your contract is kind of complicated, make a clean copy at the end and sign the clean copy. The handwritten changes and cross-outs and little arrows pointing down to the bottom of the page and then something kind of scribbled there can be a disaster waiting to happen. It's very easy to leave out short words, when you're handwriting stuff in and doing it you know, on a clipboard at the, in their yard, which can sometimes mean you leave out things like the word not, which <laughs> obviously changes things. Uh, when you're writing the numbers out, you can make horrific mistakes. One of these I saw, and this was uh, years ago, but it was a, a very high-end house out in, um, I think it was in Westchester. It might have been Montgomery. It was uh, somewhere north of where I am. Um, and the, the seller was already out of town. They'd been relocated with their job, and they were selling their house. And this thing had been faxed back and forth between them out of town and the buyer. And the buyer had a very aggressive realtor who was really kind of unpleasant to deal with. And there was just sort of a pyramid of, of changes in the price and changes in a a repair credit that the seller was giving because the house had been vacant for a little while and there had been some minor water damage in the basement. And they, the buyer wanted a credit at this amount and the seller offered that amount and they just went on and on. And there was this, it was, it really was like a mountain of numbers written above the top paragraph of the thing. And they weren't all properly crossed out and there were initials occasionally, but they were certainly not next to every change. And it was very, very difficult to understand what the price that had been agreed on was, you know, since you had two numbers, neither of which was clear. And 
when I got involved, it was because there had been a, a difference in understanding. The seller thought that the number was one thing, and the buyer thought it was another thing. And the seller thought that this was a final number, and the buyer thought that the credit was in addition to the seller providing a home warranty. And it, it, was, it was very hard to tell from the actual document. We were fortunately able to work it out to the seller's satisfaction, but it took a lot of effort and you know a lot more than you, they would have needed if just to create a clean contract. Not to mention the fact that they're paying me to negotiate with someone <laughs> on this. And that could have been easily avoided just by at some point going, this is getting too messed up, let me type up a clean thing and send it back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, question here... And unfortunately, it was forwarded to me, so I can't see who the sender was. I will go over to my other email and see who the sender was. Okay, this is from Lee in Canton, Ohio. He says, what actually needs to be in a real estate-related contract formally for it to be enforceable and in good form? Uh, Well... I'm sorry, I can't answer that because it depends on what the contract is for. A real estate-related contract includes a lot. You're just talking about a purchase contract, uh, price, division of costs. In other words, who's paying what closing costs. Uh, the relevant dates would be a, a really important thing to have in there, especially if you don't want your offer to remain open forever. Some... <laughs> uh, it's a good idea, especially if you want a specific title company to name that title company in there. Uh, description of the property doesn't have to be a legal description in the purchase contract. Something to identify what you're buying or selling. Mm-hmm. Any fixtures or personal items that are going along with it should be referenced. Mm-hmm. Most of the rest of what's in the uh, the draft, uh, the, the standard real estate contracts, actually relates to the realtor and the broker and their commissions and their non-liability. Uh, really, you know, you're you're buying something. So, what's important when you're buying something? What what is the price? What is what are the terms? When are you buying it? When will possession be given? Mm-hmm. If you're in a position where you're an investor and you might want to do some more investigating because you're putting an offer in after just a preliminary inspection, you're going to probably want some contingencies that let you out, an inspection contingency in case you turn up major, major problems that are going to make you walk away. Uh, you will want to put in uh, financing contingency. The deal is, con- is something that you're planning on financing with anything other than your own money, uh, you probably in those cases are going to need to know what the timeline looks like for getting your financing and have that timeline reflected. If it's a big building, a uh, multi-unit or a commercial structure, you're going to want to have time for some sort of environmental analysis. You may not want to go all the way through and do a full-bore environmental inspection with core drilling and what have you, but you're probably going to want to at least do you know, phase one, see if there's any indications that there's been anything there. Uh, 
some of that stuff can be very, very expensive once you've bought in. Uh, depending on your role, you'll want to have something in there about whether the property's being sold as is or not. And if you're selling a uh, piece of investment property that's been vacant for a while, it, you, you better have something in there that says you're selling it as is. It just, it, it really depends. It, there's, there's not a tremendous amount of formality that needs to be in most of these contracts. Some of them, especially the things that have to be recorded, like land contracts, yeah, there's a list of things that the state wants to see. But things like purchase contracts, you want to include everything that you need to be a certain way or want to be a certain way in the deal. It is not a good idea to assume that the other side is on the same page on these things. Mm-hmm. They very likely aren't. Yeah, and uh, if you didn't write it down, not only is it not enforceable, but I can tell you the other person won't remember you said it if they don't want to do it later. I learned that lesson really early on with a uh, a state property I was buying, and I mean this was this was like early '90s. We're talking about early on. The uh, thing was absolutely full of stuff. The heir said, oh, we're going to get all of this out of here before the closing and we're going to, you know, we're going to take what we want and then give the rest of it away. And come the closing date, I go in for a final inspection and it's all still there. And we're talking about you know, stuff stuff that didn't have any value, but was going to cost literally $1,500 to $2,000 to dispose of. And when I went back to them and said, look, you said you were going to clear this out before the closing... They said, well, yeah, but, you know, we already got what we wanted, so we're leaving the rest. And there was no telling them. I mean, my only choice at that point was to not close. And since it wasn't in the contract, it was just something they had said and I'd assumed that they were going to do. Uh, I could not close and lose my earnest money and actually risk getting sued for not closing over something that wasn't in the contract or close and eat the extra $2,000 worth of expenses. So, uh, you know, anything that you say that, that is important to you. Had it not been important to the deal, maybe not, don't write it down, but if it is important to you, formalize it. Uh, I think another place where people get into uh, problems like that is um, buying a house they intend to rehab, but the people still live there. And the agreement is you will be out at some point after the closing. You'll be out 30 That's days after the closing. And, and there's nothing in the contract saying what happens if they're not. Yeah, well, at that point, you've you, you you've probably got a two-month-long process to get them out. And I, I mean two months past that month where you thought they were going to be out. Because you're going to have to give them notice that you want to retake possession of the property. And once that's done and they haven't moved out, give them a three-day notice and then file the eviction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've had I've had uh, it happen in the past that that folks like that, you know, I go there on the first of July when they're supposed to have moved and they haven't even packed, <laughs> and they say, "Oh, well, the place we were going to move to didn't work out," and there's nothing to do except evict them, and you know, forty five days pass before you get possession of the property. Which, you know, if you're taking possession on October first, that could be a real problem uh, if you ever you know, plan to sell it before the end of the year. Uh, so just, you know, think think that's kind of stuff through. And, and I think, you know, real estate investors are basically optimistic people. And they think that if someone says they're going to do something, they're going to do it. And most of the time they do. 
But looking at things from a worst-case scenario contractually can save you a lot of trouble because ever since we started putting something in the uh, purchase contract that said, yeah, you'll be out in 30 days, and if you're not, your rent is going to be $700 a month (laughs) after that 30 days, I don't think we've ever had a holdover. I think that's a wise decision. You, you <laughs> want to have something in there. You know, and, and frankly, if, if you're letting them stay in after they've sold you the house, they should be paying you rent. It's your house at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, question here. This one is from Julie in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, hey, Julie, I'll probably see you tonight. I'm going to go speak at GD Rhea. Uh, she says, please settle an argument between myself and my realtor. I'm a wholesaler, and I learned that if I say in a contract, Julie and or assigns, that I can assign that contract. My realtor says that the bank's clause that says the contract can't be assigned overrides and or assigns. My argument is that if they sign it with and or assigns, it has overwritten overwritten their non-assignment clause. I'm afraid I'm going to have to probably make Julie unhappy. In in almost every bank deal, what happens is you submit an offer, and the bank sends you back an addendum. And the addendum makes it very clear that you cannot assign the, the property. Now, you can sign it, whatever and or assigns, and you can argue to your realtor till you're blue in the face that that will trump the bank's claim that you cannot assign it. The bank will say, look, the contract very clearly says you cannot assign it. You're trying a little trick to get around it. And actually, let me back up from that. The bank's not actually going to have to say that because the bank has to deed it to the buyer. And what the bank is going to do, and I've seen this more times than I can count, the bank is willing to deed it to only the exact name signed on the contract. So if the bank even accepts your signature of Julianne or signs, which I don't think they will, I, I don't think this is actually even going to get past the theoretical stage because I think you're going to submit the contract with them they're going to reject it because it's signed that way. Um, but if they miss it, uh, they're going to insist on deeding the property to you. And what are you going to do about it? Refuse to close? That kind of defeats the purpose. My suggestion in that situation would be that you sign as trustee and learn how to use a land trust to get around these that problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about contracts. If you have a question you would like to ask about general or specific contracts, uh, give us a call at 877-772-9658. Or alternatively, send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about contracts and specifically, um, I mean, contracts is a big topic. I mean, geez, we could have like a three-day class on that. So James Flax is talking about contract mistakes that he sees over and over and over and over again. And unless you are an attorney or a paralegal or consistently consult your attorney in regards to contract issues, you have probably made one or more of these mistakes. Um, As much as we 
like to talk about, you know, no money down real estate and so on. The reality is it's it's a big investment for someone. It's a big investment of time or money or someone's money. And it is worth understanding uh, what you are doing in regards to securing those deals and tying them up. And, and, and James, l- let me say that uh, I think the more creative the deal, in other words, the more uh, likely it is that you're doing a no money down deal, probably the more important that it is that you get a contract review because there just aren't boilerplate contracts for that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. I, I, that is unbelievably true. I mean, if you're going to go, if you've got $100,000 in the bank and you're buying a house for 100000 bucks, the worst that's going to happen to you is the house isn't worth quite what you thought it was. I mean, if you, you've got a cash closing and you're closing in 30 days, that's a hard one to have really change too much on you. If, if you're buying a house in some creative way where you're you're doing a lease option, land contract, seller financing, subject to anything like that, your your need to to do due diligence and to make sure that the the agreement is says what it's supposed to say is is much greater than the person who's just buying a piece of property for cash. I see people, and this is why I was objecting a little earlier on the idea of subject to, you, you get people who, they hear no money down, and that translates in their mind to free. Mm-hmm. It's not free. It, it, I mean, there, there are, I guess, rare occasions where someone gives someone else a piece of property. But that, that's not something you're going to be able to build a real estate investing career on. Even if no money is leaving your hands at closing, there are agreements that you've made to pay certain amounts over time. And if you weren't clear on what those are, you could be really, really getting yourself in trouble. I, I recently, uh, looking over a subject to deal for a, a client, caught the fact that it was an adjustable rate mortgage. And this client had gone through the whole negotiation process and not not noticed that. And it, I, I wasn't even really looking for it. I, it was, you know, I, I assumed that the client knew that it was an arm. I just made sure, fortunately, that I was giving the best advice I could and said, look, you really want to be careful and know the terms under which this thing can adjust, because if you take on an arm, it can, you know, you're, you're bound by those terms. And if interest rates rise, your deal could fall apart. And there, the reply was, oh, it's not an adjustable. Like, it, it absolutely <laughs> is. The statement I'm looking at tells me when the next adjustment date is. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, again, uh, you know, uh, uh, trust but verify. Uh, always, always look at what the worst case scenario could be, and then uh, do do things accordingly. Um, qu- we've got a question here from Diana, who's writing to us from Atlanta. She says, "James, you are scaring me a little bit. I have numerous courses that I have bought that have contracts included in them. Are you telling me that I should be having these reviewed by an attorney before I u- use them? I assumed that when I paid $1,000 for the course, I was getting good paperwork. Well, okay. Uh, at, at the risk of, of irritating some speakers out there who, Shall we say, oh, let's just, let's just leave the speakers completely nameless. I'm not going to get into anything that can identify anybody. There are speakers out there who've been teaching things for, I don't know, 40, 50 years. The world has changed to some extent in that time period. 
and sometimes the courses haven't changed adequately. Also, there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all course that includes contracts. There are courses that can teach you a strategy across the country, but the contracts are going to have to vary state by state because state law varies tremendously. You absolutely cannot assume that the amount you paid someone for a course who was, whose business was selling you a course guarantees that everything in the course is accurate. Even the best courses I've seen, and I've seen some very good stuff, um, they're not necessarily getting updated every every single year. There, there may be something that's changed recently. There have been, over the last you know, 10 years that I've been watching it, major changes in a lot of states' laws about various real estate things. I mean, states have banned land contracts. States have taken action uh, to, to change just about every kind of real estate transaction. I mean, subject due deals have changed dramatically. I keep coming back to that example. That federal law changed. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, are, there are changes in the law. Also, the contracts that someone puts into their course are probably the contracts they're using. You have no idea when the last time they had them reviewed was. So, yeah, I would, I would have somebody look over stuff the, the first time you use it. Now, remember, you're going out and doing these deals for a long period of time. You're not planning on doing a single deal. You didn't pay $1,000 for a course to do one deal. So you paid the $1,000 for the course. Now pay a couple hundred more bucks to a lawyer, preferably one that's recommended by somebody in your local real estate association and someone they've done business with, and have them look at the stuff. Mm-hmm. And that is a, that is a very important point. We talk a lot here on the show about uh, specialization amongst your team, and that if you're going to use a CPA, it should be a CPA who is familiar with tax law as it relates to the uh, kind of strange and complicated real estate deals we do. If you're going to use an attorney to set up your entity, it should probably be an attorney who not only is familiar with entities, but also is familiar with real estate and and the the particularly the uh, uh, tax implications of various entities. If you're going to have someone look at your contracts get an attorney who is familiar with real estate contracts because unfortunately it is the case that uh, I hear from people a lot, well, I, I, I took this to my attorney and he he basically said it was no good and gave me this other one. And the other one that they got was just a boilerplate <laughs> downloaded from some website that the attorney had access to and uh, didn't even necessarily accomplish what they wanted it to accomplish. And uh, it, it seems like, I don't know if they teach you guys this in law school or something, but it seems like attorneys are incapable of saying, well, I don't really know that, so <laughs> let me refer you over here. Uh, they often will just do the work and not say I'm not a specialist in this and I don't understand the contract that you just handed me and or the uh, implications of it being wrong. I am right now trying to get a call back from an attorney that a client has asked me to contact who is having that problem. And I can't get the call back because I don't think the attorney wants to admit that they've never seen a land contract before. Mm-hmm. But it's a very real problem. Yes, and thank you for telling all these people that we get our contracts 
online. But um, yeah, I mean, most of us, I, I think every contract that I, well, every long contract that I have has boilerplate that I took from another contract. Mm-hmm. Good Lord, writing all that stuff out every time, never going to happen. So yeah, I mean, you want a lawyer who is familiar with the deal because law school teaches us the basics of legal reasoning, really. It's not even specifics of law, most of it. And then life, practice, experience teaches us the rest of it. And if you're somebody who's looking to import or export grain from Brazil, I'm the last lawyer in the world you want looking over your contracts. I have no idea what to look at there. Uh, Conversely, the guy who may be expert at doing things like that it may have never looked at a single-family house transaction or a multifamily property transaction. So just be aware. You, there's not a magic power granted by getting a law license. You don't suddenly know everything that a client asks. And if you are coming to a lawyer with multiple different types of thing and the lawyer never says, I'm not very familiar with that, you might want to try somewhere else. The lawyer's probably not being the best representative they can for you. Now, that's produced in lawyers like with everybody else. You know, we, we need business. The world is a competitive, tough place. And in some things, a lawyer can certainly bring themselves up to speed on the matter and, and be confident with it. If you're doing creative real estate financing strategies, Probably not. You probably want somebody who's been around real estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, the, the big difference uh, between an attorney who can draft a contract because it is online and they don't have to do much and an attorney who can adequately review or draft a more creative one is that the one the, the, the specialist understands what the strategy is and what the strategy itself is supposed to accomplish which is not taught in law school <laughs> or any other school for that matter. It's uh, um, an attorney like that can point out, you know, you're, you're, you're missing something major here, which is that, uh, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, things that, that you, the client, may not even think of, but only if they're familiar with the strategy as opposed to the law. And uh, yeah. I really think that's a, I think, really think that's a, a, a big, um, you know, if you're trying to find out if your attorney knows how to do this or not say have you ever heard of this kind of deal <laughs> and if they say uh no and i think it's probably illegal uh then maybe do another uh, attorney maybe go elsewhere so in our last two minutes here james if you had a single thing that you could just implant into the head of every real estate investor that would make your life easier and make their deals less risky what would that thing be? What would you tell them? Earlier is better. And that, this doesn't just apply to your consulting your attorney. This consult, applies to any situation where you're going to consult an expert. It's better if the doctor finds it when it's a little tiny lump. It's better if the attorney finds it when it's an ambiguity in a document that they're charging you 50 bucks to look at and not a screaming piece of litigation coming down the pike at 90 miles an hour. Your biggest power as a real estate investor is your ability to walk away if the deal is not what you want. Once you've actually gone ahead and done the deal, you've lost that power. And whatever your your case may be, whatever the lawyer can do to fix it at that at that point 
is going to be much more expensive and probably much less satisfactory than if you had just gotten it caught up front. Mm-hmm. Okay, so don't get way into a deal and way into the signing of things before you have consulted the experts who actually know uh, what, what you should have said before you signed the contract. Uh, appreciate it very much, James. Uh, and folks, do not forget the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati meeting. It is tomorrow night. Early meeting is about the basics of wholesaling, and the main meeting is about how to get free houses. We will, of course, be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.